Good morning, Hayden Bible Church. Welcome. Isn't it wonderful to be here right now? That we get to sing all these songs and look at each other and just know that we're in Christ? Oh, man. Let's thank the Lord for that. Father, what a blessing it is that you've plucked us out of darkness. And, and as an assembly here today, Lord, we rejoice in Christ our Savior. We thank you that you've brought us into a kingdom of light, a kingdom of love, Lord, a kingdom that is an everlasting and eternal kingdom. Lord, we get a taste today of the fullness of your kingdom as we sing praises to your name. Holy Spirit, come, teach us, help us, illumine your word to us. Lord, by your grace, help us grow today. In Christ's name, amen. So this morning, as we continue our series on God's church, we're going to stop for a moment, and we're going to give some attention to the, and and acknowledge the, the basis of the power and the authority and the process for discipline within God's church. And, and I know that you know, as, you, as, the, as one, of, one of the marks or the characteristics of the new birth in God's kingdom is that you hate the sin that you used to love, and you love the righteousness that just makes, used to make you sick. As Christian in God's kingdom hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And throughout all scripture, we can see the development by God of an assembly of people who hunger and thirst for his righteousness. An assembly of people who exhibit the characteristics of their God. The very image of God spread across the planet as the waters cover the sea in an astonishing ultimate end purpose where God himself tabernacles Or makes his dwelling place with men and women like us. Glory to God. Where for eternity they're called his people and he is their God. An eternal relationship that's so profound, we're going to see today, that scripture likens it to a marriage. Remember the nation Israel back in Exodus 6. God heard the groanings of the sons of Israel and he sent word to them and promising to rescue them out of the slavery and of, of Pharaoh and take them for himself. In Exodus 6, 7, he says, Then I will take you for my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God rescued her out of her slavery to a heavy taskmaster and bore her, as he says, on eagles' wings and brought her to himself. And he made a covenant with her. And he said, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment or my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests." And a holy nation. All the people in Exodus 5, 8, they answered together and they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. In Ezekiel 16, 8, God says to Israel, He says, I passed by you and I saw you. And behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you. So that you became mine, declares the Lord. 
The covenant was set, and in the relationship, he cared for Israel. He washed her with water and anointed her with oil and clothed her with fine clothing and adorned her with ornaments and bracelets and necklaces and rings and and even a tiara for her head. She was exceedingly beautiful, like royalty, like a queen even. And she was famous among the nations because of the glorious beauty that God had given her. She had beauty on the outside, but her heart was far from her God, her husband, so to speak. So she started to trust in her beauty, and and God's word says that she started to wander. In Ezekiel 16, 15, God says to her, You trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame. And you prepared, you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. She was an adulterous wife who took strangers instead of her husband. And and remember the covenant that God at that time he had made with her was a covenant of blessings for obedience And it was a covenant of curses for disobedience. And so God brought judgments against her, just like he'd promised in in the wilderness. But her heart didn't change. Her beauty was only external. Of course, she would repent for a moment to escape the the pain of of discipline and, and the curse. But she would quickly turn back to her adulteries. Her heart was rock hard and she needed a heart. She was in desperate need of a heart that aligned with her beauty. And so God decreed a covenant that would change her very nature. In Jeremiah 31, he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Ezekiel sheds even more light on this new covenant with Israel and Judah. Through him, God says, I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own lands. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put, put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. A new covenant. 
a faithful and committed relationship. In Jeremiah 32, verse 40, God says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing them good, and that I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. As Isaiah, in Isaiah, under this new covenant, God says, you will be called, my delight is in her. And your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so under this new covenant, your God will rejoice over you. This new covenant, you and I know, is the new covenant in Christ's blood. The new covenant in Christ's blood. And a covenant that doesn't depend on the faithfulness of fallen people. A covenant that brings dead bones to life. And causes faithfulness now to flourish. It's a new covenant that makes the old covenant obsolete. And by the indwelling Holy Spirit of God causes an adornment of faithfulness from the heart. A nature change that hungers and thirsts after righteousness. And you and I in Idaho, by faith through the grace of God, in his loving kindness, as astonishing as it seems, you and I, trusters in Jesus Christ, born of the Spirit of God, have been included or grafted in to this new covenant God promised to the house of Israel and of Judah. Isn't that wonderful news? It's a covenant between God the Father and his Son. It's not a covenant based on performance. It's a covenant between God the Father and his Son where the Father is preparing a faithful bride to be eternally wedded to his Son. And because of the new nature of this bride, she is progressively, by his grace, being prepared and preparing herself in readiness for the full consummation of wedding to her husband through the washing of the water of the spirit-enlivened word of God. Revelation 19 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. In Revelation 21.9, one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls of the seven last plagues came and spoke with John saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. A bride made ready, adorned internally with the glory of God as his image is restored, looking forward to the ultimate glory when when his image is complete in her. A faithful bride to her husband now, persevering in faithfulness, kept now, by the power of God instead of her own resolve. Turn with me to Matthew 18 now, please. Matthew 18. What a wonderful gospel. 
Matthew. From one end to the other, the gospel of Matthew is a panorama proclaiming the glory of Jesus Christ as the all throughout scripture promised king and messiah. From Matthew 1 where he is meticulously demonstrated to be the possessor of the throne of David, the true king who truly owns the throne of the kingdom of God eternally. Clear to the end, to Matthew 28, 18, where he says himself, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. God spoke of him through the prophet Ezekiel when he said, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them, he will feed them himself, And be their shepherd. And I the Lord will be their God. And my servant David will be a prince among them. I the Lord have spoken. And then he again through Malachi he prophesied saying. Behold I'm going to send my messenger. And he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The holy temple in the Lord. In the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And after thousands of years of enduring earthly kingdom after earthly kingdom, led by sinful men, the wait was finally over. The prophesied John the Baptist stands up in the wilderness of Judea in Matthew and he cries out, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The very dominion and rule of heaven has come near now. And the king of this dominion is Jesus Christ, the very king of glory. And and as a demonstration of the worldwide extent of his kingdom, the inclusion of all the nations, blessed through the seed promised in Abraham, he begins his ministry preaching, ironically, in the Galilee of the Gentiles, saying himself, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He, He came teaching, he came proclaiming, And healing, pointing to the good news of the kingdom of heaven. The rule of God on earth. He was even casting out demons. And saying the kingdom of God has come upon you. His power supersedes and is supreme above all other powers. His authority is exalted above all other authorities. Even Satan's authority. And this king is plundering Satan's house even now as you and I faithfully preach the gospel and he builds his church, the bride. One soul at a time. You and I as Christians here at Hayden Bible Church are among the plunder of this victorious king. The Lamb of God that John the Baptist, uh, excuse me, that John the Baptist proclaimed, he is our shepherd king. The, the captain of the heavenly city that, that's come down out of heaven, his kingdom will have no end. And his will will certainly be done on earth as it is in heaven as his glory spreads across the earth. And he establishes justice among the nations. And the righteousness of Christ shines from his church, from this place, as the image of God is restored in us from glory to glory as we are transformed into the image of Christ. A bride, scripture says, adorned for her husband. This king, the the king with all power, the king with all authority, the true eternal David, the Messiah, is preparing a bride, a bride holy, and a bride blameless. 
Remember from Ephesians 5, verses 26 and 27, Christ is sanctifying his church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That's his purpose for his bride. The king will have his bride. And the bride, a faithful bride, makes herself ready. Just a couple of months ago, in my family, we were so blessed to see one of our sons get married. Literally, months were, pre- were spent preparing for this really special day. Many, many faithful people were involved, and, and I had the, the special privilege of getting to officiate the wedding. And finally, after all the, the, the wedding preparations were complete, the day came. And at the venue, there was this special place. We wondered where in the heck she went. but we, So there was this special place where the bride went to make herself ready. She had a, a group of ladies working together to prepare her for this very special occasion. And it's one of those moments that you never forget for the rest of your life. As the ceremony began, and, and I stood at this kind of rustic, wooden altar out in the forest and my son was standing just to the left in front of me I looked down as she entered the aisle and I was stunned I I said to myself I remember saying oh my goodness she was stunning she was a bride fully prepared for the special union The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, he says to the Corinthians, he says, For I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Titus, Paul says that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself, a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And then in 1 John, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Here in Matthew 18, this purification process is on display. In Matthew 18, a purification process is on display. It's the special room hidden from all the guests where a bride is making herself ready. Not only personally, but corporately. Attendants ministering to her as she's adorned with the glorious beauty of the righteousness of her husband and and exhibits that beauty as she walks out her faithful Christian life. Let's look at Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. Jesus, the bridegroom, he says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. 
If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. We're familiar with this passage, aren't we? A chaste bride is being prepared here. A bride pure and holy. A bride desiring to be made ready. And a bride desiring to make herself ready. Let's consider first as we consider church discipline this morning that church discipline isn't merely a cold and mechanical and punitive process of throwing annoying people out of church. But instead, it's church discipline personally and corporately is the careful preparation of a bride. For the most part, you and I, we've grown up in a, in a, as very independent, self-governed people, and especially in North Idaho. And we bristle at the thought of anyone infringing on our own personal sovereignty. But today we're going to see that in the church, the city of God, the city of the king of glory, the, the city whose builder and architect is God, the city with the temple being built, one living stone placed upon another, all aligned to the cornerstone, that it's only by his power, and it's only by his authority, and it's under his discipline that his bride is being prepared for an eternal union with her bridegroom. In the context of this passage, we'll see that instead of being cold and mechanical and punitive, instead, church discipline is intended by our king to be intentional. It's intended by our king to be restorative and purifying. In the context, the verses just prior to our passage in Matthew 18, they tell us of a man with a hundred sheep. One of them runs off on its own. And the man goes to search for it so he can bring it back into the flock. In verse 14, that passage says that it's not the will of the father that any of his little ones perish. He keeps and shepherds those who are his. Similarly, starting in verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins... If he runs off, so to speak, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. See, first of all here this morning that church discipline is intentional. It's intentional. There's a purpose here. The Lord says, if your brother sins, go get him. Bring him back. Don't let him wander off by himself like that. Bring him back. He's important to me. How many times have you personally 
senior brother or sister, even here at Hayden Bible Church, get caught up in sin. And instead of passionately, out of love, going after him to, or her to recover them, we just shake our heads and say, well, that's just too bad. I wonder if they're even a Christian. You'll know them by their fruits. You know what your father does? He runs after them to recover them so that they're not lost. He goes because only his goodness and faithful love will pursue them all the days of their life. Church discipline is intentional. Or what about when someone's sinned against you personally in the church? Truly sinned. And you just ignore it. You never bring it up because it's uncomfortable. (laughs) And you hope that it won't become a wedge between you and them and you try to pretend it hasn't happened. Because after all, right, Scripture says, judge not lest you be judged. And you think in your mind that you don't want to offend them by addressing it. Don't don't you remember that a bride is being prepared for the king of glory? Church discipline is the careful preparation of a bride. In 1 Peter 4, verse 17, Peter says regarding those suffering because of sinfulness, he says, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Hebrews tells us to pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Church discipline is intentional. The assembly will be sanctified. And as fellow members of the body of Christ, the bride being prepared, you and I must be intentional about recovering straying ones or stumbling ones. Our our Father wants each one. It's a gift to His Son. We had earthly fathers, Hebrews 12 says, to discipline us, but, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Just think. Go to him in private. Show him his sin in private. In private. Between you and him alone, go with a heart of redeeming love as your theme, like the song says. And if he listens to you, what happened? You've won your brother. You've brought him back. You've recovered and restored him. And you rejoice with your father. 
So you can see the heart of church discipline as well is restorative. Church discipline is restorative. You've won your brother. You're together. Fellowship is maintained. The body is whole. The bride is adorned. Holiness is lived out. Remember as well from Galatians 6 verse 1. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. What if you go and he or she doesn't listen? There's that chance, right? Maybe you've personally had experiences like that. What do you do? You're zealous for the glory of the, of the church, the, the bride of Christ being prepared, that you, you want there to be wholeness in the body. You have a heart that's of the spirit, not of the flesh. So you approach them and they do not respond. Then what? Look back at verse 16. Uh, Jesus says, But if he does not listen to you, Take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. The effort of restoration, it it continues as you bring others now into this process. And notice here, by the way, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 19, the beautiful law, the word, the sword of the spirit that protects the innocent, yet it determines the guilty, the wonderful law that does that. It's the law that has been written on the heart of God's people under the new covenant. And so therefore it is agreeable to us as born again Christians, as people born into his kingdom. It's the law of the wisdom and the glory of God that he assumes is impacting our lives as Christians. Albeit not for right standing, but the law for right understanding of living as a guide to see what life looks like lived out in his kingdom. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So as as the next step, after we've had the private conversation, pleading with our brother or sister caught up in sin, instead of going again alone based on this good and perfect law, we we re-approach our loved one with one or two of the other saints. There's still discretion involved. There's still the hope of restoration and still the heart of redeeming love with the precious purpose of the careful preparation of a bride. We're still pursuing a straying, stumbling Christian, someone with a testimony of new birth yet stumbling in sin. But now others are involved, and you, and you want him back so bad, and, and he's missing from the body, and the glory of God is at stake. So you pursue to restore. Fellowship in the church is the best place for the saints. And, and, and you want the best situation for your loved one that's stumbling. And, and yet in verse 17, if he even refuses to listen to them, to the two or three, you tell it to the church. You bring it to the elders who will carefully consider this in front of the body. 
Because the body of Christ, the bride making herself ready, is attentive to her own wholeness. So, so still with discretion, keeping this within the church, under the shepherding of the elders, we bring it to the whole fellowship. Why are we bringing it to the whole fellowship? To, to shame people? To, to just show them how inept they are? To make them... Stumble even further? No, what we're doing is that we're reaching out to the whole fellowship, the whole local assembly of believers into, into pursuing our straying or stumbling brother or sister so that everybody is working together to bring them back into the fold. That's what we're doing. Each of us then is asked to pursue reconciliation with that same heart of redeeming love, the heart of Jesus. We want them. The whole church is sent out then to recover the straying one. Our hope still is full restoration. Church discipline is restorative. Yet again from verse 17. If he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you, our Savior says, as a Gentile or a tax collector. We're going to see this morning as well that church discipline is purifying. It's purifying. God is preparing a chaste bride, pure, holy, and undefiled. And an unrepentant sinner absolutely refusing to turn away from sin, refusing and not merely struggling for a moment or for a time against it, but their way of living, their ongoing way of life over the long haul without any conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit is unrepentant sin only, even when the whole church comes to plead for their repentance, and yet they refuse to listen to the whole church this person is no longer assumed to be a believer. No longer assumed in the assembly of the believers to be born of the Spirit. Not even assumed to be a member of the body of Christ, spiritually. And Jesus says that they're to be treated as if they are a Gentile or a tax collector. What might that treatment look like? It's certainly still a, a treatment of redeeming love. In addition to a gospel opportunity where we make the call to repent and believe and not fall short of the grace of God, the Apostle Paul writes a lot about this dynamic of this putting out in First and Second Corinthians. In Second Corinthians six, Paul writes, he says, "Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols for?" We are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I, 
I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Regarding the unrepentant sinners as a Gentile and a tax collector would certainly mean that intimate body life of fellowship is not possible. And so the unrepentant sinner would be put out of that fellowship. In 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul is addressing very heinous and unrepentant sin within the church. And he calls for the putting out of the unrepentant offender from the fellowship. In verse 5 he says, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. If a person is allowed to stay among the assembly of believers in the body, they could live continuously under the delusion that they're a Christian. Wouldn't that be the worst thing that could happen? And never really come to the full knowledge of the grace of God and salvation. And will also continue to be an evil and perverting influence in the body life of the church. So that person is put out of the body. In 1 Corinthians 5-7, Paul refers to the corrupting influence of the unrepentant sinner in the fellowship as leaven in dough. He says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened, for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. This isn't cold and mechanical, it's in preparation of a bride. It's concerned for the glory of God. We're a bride making herself ready, and church discipline is purifying. In this way, God is commanding that we, with godly discernment and right hearts, make these types of judgment calls, according to God's word, walking in the Spirit, that we make these types of judgment calls within the church so that the temple, the holy temple in the Lord, will in fact be holy. It's 1 Corinthians 5.13, Paul says, Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. By the way, yet another quote from Deuteronomy with the intention of preserving God's community of people. Remember we read that. Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus continues in verse 18 and he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Church discipline is by God's authority. Church discipline, the process that we're talking about today, is by God's authority. As the church carefully follows the word of God, having the right understanding of how someone is saved from God's judgment... 
from the word understanding and what a Christian life looks like. We're in alignment with heaven in that understanding. So through the church discipline process, identifying someone who is unrepentant or fast bound in sin, we're simply saying the same thing that God says about such people in his word. And we can have confidence that putting that unrepentant uh, person out of fellowship is already in alignment with the authority of heaven. That's why Christ says, whatever you bind or loose on earth shall have been bound or loosed in heaven. In verse 19, Jesus continues along these same lines. He says, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. We're still in the context of the same passage here. Those of us who find ourselves in situation regarding, situations regarding church discipline can be absolutely sure that our Father will be faithful to us during this process because he's the one that's designed it. He ordained it himself. And in verse 20, he continues and says, For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. It's the promise of his presence in this process. Christ is with us in this process. He's the king on his throne, and all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. And as his hands and feet here carrying out his will, his divine presence is with us and gives us confidence that he will direct us. Remember in Matthew 28, he says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. As we close here, remember today that church discipline is intentional. It's intentional. We, we get up and we move our feet, and it's restorative that we want that straying brother or sister back into the fellowship It's purifying. The father is giving the son a chaste bride. And certainly as it's carried out in accordance with his word, it's all by God's authority. Hayden Bible Church practices church discipline. We practice church discipline personally through personal holiness. We practice church discipline in the one another city that we've talked about where we pursue each other to bring us back into the fold. And we also, through the elders, we practice church discipline corporately. Church discipline is the careful preparation of a bride. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The bride, the wife of the Lamb, the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God gleaming in all her brilliance with the righteousness of Christ actually being lived out. Church discipline, remember today, is to the end that Christ have the fullness of the reward for which he died. A a chaste bride. 
washed in his blood, holy and blameless before him, sanctified in the word, adorned for her husband, the king of glory himself. And together the spirit and the bride say, come. Let's pray. Father, what a blessing that you have blessed us with. Direction, Lord, and understanding your authoritative process that you have us be part of in adorning the bride. Lord, we want that all of which you've died, Lord, be brought in, and not only that, grow to the fullness of maturity and sanctification so that it's all to be to the glory of God and Jesus Christ and that his bride is ready. Stunning. Lord, we thank you for this precious gift in Christ's name. Amen.